Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. It's Saturday, 10th of October. You're listening to Back Chat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And I'm Chantelle Alkuri. Up first, we're speaking to Aidy Magro from Community Action for Rainbow Rights about Mark Latham's proposed education legislation changes against trans and gender diverse children in New South Wales. After that, Back Chat reporter Isabella Antonou speaks with Shirley Lay from Sweatshop about the backlash against Jesse Tu's first cultural review for the SMH. And finally, we'll be chatting to Chris Chubbs about plans to outlaw LGBTQIA plus conversion practices in Australia. But as always, we want to hear from you. You can join in on the conversation and text us in on 0409 945 945 or you can tweet us at BackchatFBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. This week, Jacinda Ardern announced that if she's re-elected in 2021, New Zealand will ban LGBTQIA plus conversion practices in New Zealand. The conversation has continued here at home with both Queensland and the ACT banning it too. But as the religious discrimination bill has been halted in the Senate due to COVID, the banning of the conversion practices in New South Wales and Australia-wide still hangs in the balance. Chris Chab is an activist, founder of Soja Survivors and an LGBT plus conversion survivor who's anxious to see bans in Australia executed thoroughly and fairly. He's on the line with us now. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Hey, no problem. So what is the ideology behind conversion practices? Uh, yeah, so the ideology that underpins all conversion practices is basically a set of false and misleading claims that are grounded in pseudoscience. Uh, about usually about the cause of being queer, so trying to assign some sort of cause behind it, or um, you know about the nature of being queer. So that that being LGBTQ is a form of brokenness or a broken you know sexuality or identity. So having survived it yourself, how do you feel these practices affect LGBT plus youth in Australia's religious communities, especially? It's it's really difficult to um, to quantify the harm. Um, what we have seen is that um, survivors of, of uh, conversion practices have uh, very, very long-term negative effects, which you know uh, in, involve things like um, mental health um, issues and uh, issues with relationships and all sorts of things. Um, of course, one of the most uh, uh, well, one one of the most horrific things is that um, sometimes it leads to suicide. So it's really serious. And where do conversion practices take place in Australia? Uh, so there is a misconception, um, and I think that what it's it's come from a lot of uh, American movies and uh, sort of uh, historical stories in the media that this is happening in um, therapeutic contexts. So in you know places like. Uh, psychologist offices and things like that but uh, the reality is that probably 95% or more are actually happening in a religious context so in an informal space often uh, in, under the guise of pastoral care or prayer ministry um, so yeah it's it, it's happening in informal spaces more more than anything 
So I watched Boy Erased the other night yes. and it was horrifying, horrifying. But uh, given that we're in a more modern context than that movie, do yes. a lot of the conversion practices also take place through the internet? Absolutely. So uh, we definitely find that, um, uh, particularly over the last 10 years, uh, there's been a lot of uh, online stuff popping up, particularly things like, you know, uh, uh, success stories in inverted commas, um, talking about their own healing journey or their own success in um, changing their uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, there's a lot of books that are available that you can purchase um, that have been written over many decades. So it's all the all the information is out there and it's so easily accessible. Um, and often uh, what we find is that uh, people that are growing up in communities that are uh, that are pushing this ideology and that people that are doused in this messaging um, over many years are being referred to those resources. So, it, you know, sometimes it's some, something that they go and look for themselves. Sometimes it's something that's given to them. And how does it feel seeing Queensland and the ACT pass legislation to ban LGBT plus conversion? Um it's mixed feelings, really. Uh, I have to say that when the Queensland Bill passed, I felt a lot of pressure to celebrate and be really happy, but I, I couldn't because the Queensland legislation is one of the worst legislations in the world um, in the sense that it's very weak. Um, it's not very protective because it doesn't actually address um, the mechanisms of harm. It doesn't, it, it, it's, it's not addressing where the harm is occurring. So the Queensland Bill actually... Um, only applies in um, uh, therapeutic contexts, uh, which means that 95% of conversion practices are not covered by that bill. So um, that was really disappointing. Uh, obviously, the ACT uh, legislation was a lot better. It's one of the best in the world, actually, so far. We're still hoping for better legislation, um, but it does actually apply um, in all contexts. It doesn't. It's not. It, it's not as narrow as the Queensland bill. So bringing it a bit more local now, mm. where are we at with a ban on the practice in New South Wales? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, I, I can't say that we're really anywhere. Um, I know that, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been um, a little bit of talk about it, but there hasn't been anything concrete. Um, the last I heard was that the health minister um, was talking about the benefits of a federal bill I believe and like that's I've just heard that I'm not sure if it's true um, which you know is a little bit worrying from my perspective because obviously uh, you know while we're waiting for legislation there are people that are being subjected to it um, and I'd just really like to see great state legislation enacted. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 with Chantelle and Shami. We're talking to Chris Chab on the LGBT plus conversion practices and where New South Wales stands on banning it. So, Chris, what threat would the Religious Discrimination Bill pose to the national effort to ban conversion practices? Yeah, um, well, I mean, obviously it's always concerning um, when, uh, you know, whenever we talk about re religious, uh, you know, uh, strengthening religious freedom and you know uh, I'm, I'm a Christian I'm still a Christian I'm also gay I grew up gay um, and I have to be honest that 
I never faced discrimination because I was a Christian. I faced incredible amounts of discrimination, particularly from religious people, for being gay. Um, and so, from a gay Christian's perspective, we do not need more um, protection for, for for religion in this country. We are so free. We are so lucky. And you know, I, I really believe in religious freedom. I um, I'm, I, th- I think it, it, it's a very important freedom that we have, um, but we already have it, you know. Um, and so it, it always concerns me when um, when uh, any group of people that is stronger and sort of more of a majority um, needs to be protected from a minority. It doesn't make sense. So with banning gay conversion yeah. therapy, there are places like Brazil that have put that kind of legislation into place. Yeah. What has been the feedback from nations like that? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's been quite a lot of um, legislation that's been passed o- overseas over the last, even over the last 12 months. Um, uh, what we've seen is that a, a lot of legislation overseas, particularly in the United States, is very narrow. So it's looked very similar to the Queensland legislation where it's, you know, it's focusing either on, um, you know, on therapeutic context or sometimes it's only, it only counts for people that are under the age of 18. Uh, and so, you know, unfortunately, we, we, we know that just passing a ban on a particular practice or a therapy in inverted commas um, isn't effective. So that's why we um, sort of survivors advocate for a whole range of strategies that need to be uh, implemented alongside legislation. So things like, you know, ed- like education strategies and public health campaigns and things like that so that it's supporting the legislation because we're not actually fighting against a particular practice. We're fighting against an ideology. We're fighting against um, messaging that is pseudoscientific and is harmful. So, Chris, as someone who's speaking from experience, what's your advice for LGBT plus people of faith who are currently experiencing conversion either formally or informally? Um, Well, yeah, it's really difficult because a lot of people that are going through it want to go through it. So um, the only thing that I would say is that you are not broken. You are the way that God has made you. Um, And, you know... I, th- I think probably the best advice that I could give is to people around them. Um, you know, I remember when I was going through it, I had a lot of friends that were super concerned about me. Um, they definitely didn't agree with what I was doing, um, but they didn't leave me. They didn't say to me, look, if you do that, we can't, you know, we're not going to be your mate anymore or anything like that. They, they supported me, not what I was doing. They supported me and they told me that, I, that they loved me. And they told me about their concerns. And so what I'd say to people who are worried about their friends or family, just love them, Um, you know, tell them your concerns, make sure they know where they can get help, but just love them. That's beautiful, beautiful advice. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Chris. Um, No problem. And for sharing your insight with us. Thank you. That was LGBT conversion survivor and activist Chris Chabs discussing the proposed bans and conversion practices and how the religious discrimination bill could affect it. But don't turn that dial because up next we have Backchat reporter Isabella Antonou speaking with Shirley Lay about the racist backlash against emerging Sydney literary critic Jesse Chu. That coming up just now. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. 
Author and emerging critic Jessie Tu has been thrown into the spotlight with her debut literary review for the Sydney Morning Herald. Tu's negative review saw her and her work labelled as unkind and unprofessional. This comes off the back of Fairfax's emerging cultural critics initiative being criticised for lacking diversity. Backchat reporter Isabella Antonew spoke to Shirley Lay, create, creative producer at the sweatshop Western Sydney Literacy Movement, to discuss Auslit's struggle to include non-white voices and the cultural value of reviews. It was announced a $150,000 initiative by the Copyright Agency and the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas would support emerging cultural critics in Fairfax publications. After a considerable amount of criticism was aimed at the all-white cast of recipients, Jack Khalil and Beck Kavanagh decided to step down, allowing POC writers Declan Fry and Jessie Tu to take their place. Jessie released her first review with the Sydney Morning Herald on September 19th. A somewhat negative commentary on Newcastle author Ewa Ramsey's debut novel, The Morbids. The internet piled on the emerging critic, calling her review mean, questioning her character, skill, and the program that allowed such a piece to be published in the first place. As one of the creative producers of Sweatshop's literacy movement and a key critic of the program's early flaws, Shirley, it's great to hear your thoughts on the debacle. Hi. What do you think is the purpose of reviews and cultural criticism in general? Look, I think um, cultural criticism is vital as part of a rich arts landscape to me, cultural criticism and reviews are works of art in themselves. They reveal just as much about a reviewer or a critic as they do about the works of art that are being reviewed themselves. And the point of cultural criticism is to start important conversations well, kind of in talking about that relationship between, I guess, a review, a piece of cultural criticism and the reviewer itself, why do you think Two's uh, piece got the response it did, especially when we know that people actually enjoy reading negative criticism? Well, I think there's definitely a racial element to the level of scrutiny that Two is facing at the moment. I think... Australian mainstream culture or let's just say under the white gaze I believe this as a fellow Asian woman that um, having a strong opinion and having the guts to articulate that opinion is a very uncomfortable thing for the white Australian mainstream culture to have to witness and take and I think we've seen this happen again and again in pop culture. Uh, it kind of reminds me of when Yumi Steins took a stand on that morning talk show a couple of years ago or maybe it was last year. And at this point, um, it's also not just Asian women. I think it's women of colour as well in, in general who do face more intense scrutiny for what we say and how we behave in public. Do we feel like programs like this are equipped to handle, protect and foster non-white voices? Can they actually go beyond tokenism, especially in a context like this incident? Well, I think that's an ongoing discussion. And I, I do note that there are quite a few voices in this debate 
also taking aim at the editors responsible for publishing two's review. And I think when we talk about institutional change, we really are talking about change at every level of an institution, not just at the level where you're hiring writers or artists or journalists. We're also talking about more diverse editors and more diversity at a leadership level. And so I think it's an ongoing conversation and it should be an ongoing initiative. But I think the start that has been made where there is space being made for First Nations and people of colour artists, I think that's a good starting point to be at. And I think it's worth supporting to and fry in their works as two diverse critics that are really enriching the broader landscape of um, Australian arts criticism. Do you think this incident will change Australia's review culture or is it too conveniently hidden behind the excuse of civility? So I think when we think about Two's review, I think we should think about the conversations that are being generated from this review. And on the other side of the debate, you have fantastic artists and um, artists such as Omar Seka, who did a a whole thread of tweets. But the gist of what Omar was saying was that having more critics of colour in the industry means that we are going to see radically different positions um, politically, culturally and artistically to the traditional white mainstream positions that we've been fed for so long. And so I think Jesse's Jesse Two's review has really shown that um, has really opened up this conversation as to what we expect from arts criticism, um, why we label some reviews as more objective than others, and we we're being forced to think about why certain reviewers are being more scrutinised than others as well. That was Backchat reporter Isabel Antonou speaking with writer Shirley Lay about criticisms levelled against emerging critic and author Jessie Too. But don't go anywhere because up next we're speaking to Aidan Magro from Community Action for Rainbow Rights to discuss Mark Latham's anti-trans legislation proposals. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Mark Latham of One Nation New South Wales has proposed an education amendment bill that punishes LGBT plus people, specifically trans and gender diverse people in New South Wales schools. This, in addition to his religious freedoms bill, is gathering mainstream support. But organisers like Community Action for Rainbow Rights and LGBTI Rights Australia are attempting to fight the bill by holding a rally. Last night, the New South Wales Police won a Supreme Court case prohibiting the rally from going ahead. Aidan Magro, campaigner at Community Action for Rainbow Rights, joins us now to discuss. Thanks for joining us, Aidan. Thanks for having me. So to start off, could you please explain what the proposed bill actually intends to introduce? Yes, so the Education Legislation Amendment Bill um, introduced by the One Nation Party 
Um, it proposes that uh, queer content, including queer characters, uh, queer histories, queer people should be removed from curriculums. Uh, it also um, proposes that uh, teachers should be deterred from affirming uh, transgender students and gender diverse students um, from affirming their gender identity in school. Um, it, it's basically a really large attack on some of the most vulnerable people in our community. And what will the scope be for teachers and how will they, how will it threaten their livelihood? Well, it is quite worrying for teachers, especially for trans teachers who, if this bill passed, would have their accreditation removed. Um, it also instructs uh, teachers who are not even trans to not intervene in transphobic bullying and if they did, they would be threatened with losing their job. And if it's passed, would this differ from the Religious Discrimination Bill last year or One Nation's Anti-Discrimination Amendment Bill? It does differ in a few ways. For instance, this bill focuses on education, whereas those, those other two bills were more general uh, in terms of, of workplace and, and gender affirmation. However, um, while this is a, a large attack on trans kids and trans teachers, um, it definitely feeds into the rhetoric of those two bills. Um, it has been argued that this bill doesn't have major party support, um, which is which is quite likely as it is a one-nation bill. Um, however, it does give Scott Morrison and, and any other transphobic politician definitely a grounds to start revitalising rhetoric like that, and it is quite dangerous for the future of legislation relating to gender-diverse people. So if the bill does go through, which you've just suggested it hopefully won't, um, given the lack of major party support, in what ways would it affect LGBT plus youth? Well, it's already affecting affecting them in, in the way that it's been proposed. And, and every time we see bills like this proposed, we see, we see violence against transgender community rise. We see rhetoric being spewed in the media that you know, tells people to not affirm their gender identity, that, that they, they are not valid or worth um, safety. And, and that is enough in itself. But if it is passed, it, that, that will only be solidified in our communities and we'll start to see a rise in violence um, due to the rhetoric by our government. You're listening to Backchat on FBI 94.5 FM with Chantelle and Shami. We're talking to Aidan Magro about Mark Latham's Education Amendment Bill and its impacts on trans and gender diverse children. So Aidan, a report by ACON states that surveys reveal transgender Australians already experience high rates of abuse, harassment and violence. How would this bill encourage social intolerances and the anti-trans rhetoric within our communities? Well, as it's a bill that focuses on education and it largely proposes that education surrounding um, gender diverse people and transgender people should be removed from the curriculum, it'll have a really large effect on how we're bringing up the next generation of people in our community. First of all, it will mean that those young people in these schools who do, who are transgender or do have a gender diverse identity will not feel comfortable in their own school, um, let alone in our community. But it will also have an effect on how we, we as a society view um, this community, this transgender community. It, it will mean that um, you know, education is such an important thing and, and when the, the government steps in and, and decides what uh, should be um, 
should be taught to students on the basis of religious beliefs, we, we start to see that our society is becoming less secular by the day. And um, it really does have an effect um, on, on growing violence um, towards transgender people who are some of the most vulnerable people in our community. So Community Action for Rainbow Rights, which you're a part of, and LGBTI Rights Australia were taken to the Supreme Court by the New South Wales Police, getting the protests prohibited today. So what does that mean for protesters? Well, it means that uh, we've only got to become stronger and we've only got to get more numbers because uh, myself and Community Action for Rainbow Rights, we are determined to not let police repression diminish our democratic right to stand up for trans kids and trans teachers. Uh, as we've seen at Black Lives Matter protests and at the education protests at University of Sydney, uh, there is definitely a strong set of activists and groups who are willing to fight for these rights no matter what. It also does show that there is a double standard going on right now with the public health order. Uh, just today it was announced that 11,000 people will be allowed to go to the Royal Ramwick Racecourse next weekend to attend the races. Um, but for the same reasons that they are allowed to, we are not allowed to protest. Um, we, had, we had submitted a Form 1 which stated that 200 to 300 people would be, would be coming today and for some reason that is a, more of a risk than 11,000 people at Royal Randwick Racecourse. So we start to see that, in fact, the enforcement of this law is arbitrary and it does protect the interests of the rich and it is meant to, in a way, squash protest. It, it's not being uh, interpreted right by the police. So how can people show solidarity this weekend and in the future? Well, this weekend you can come out today um, at 1pm Taylor Square um, There'll be a lot of us there who are, who are willing to stand up for trans rights no matter what. Um, we have power in numbers, um, and that will only become more important as time goes on uh, in the next few months, next few years. Um, we really need a, a growing group to, to show that we will stand up for our rights no matter what. Aidan, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you so much, and hopefully see you all there today. <laughs> That was Community Action for Rainbow Rights campaigner Aidan Magro talking about One Nation's education bill in New South Wales and how it affects LGBT plus people in the community. That's all we have time for on the show today. Big thanks to our guests Aidan Magro from Rainbow Rights, Shirley Lay from Sweatshop Western Sydney and Chris Chab from Sojus Survivors. This episode of Back Chat was brought to you by Charles Rushforth, Isabella Antonew, Miley, Millie Roberts, Beck Manabog, and Tanita Rizagi. Miley Roberts. I'm yeah, going to call our EP Miley, Miley from Miley now. That's fine. We'll be back next week, but for now, here's a song by our own producer, Charles Rushforth. They're a Sydney band. They're called Board Shorts. This is Day and Age. Enjoy and have a good weekend.